Today on this episode of the PV Roundup Specialist Spotlight. To understand the benefits of using cold exposure and the titration of it. So how should you titrate the cold in the field if there's traumatic uh, injury? Today, Dr. Francois Heyman, who studies thermal physiology at the University of Ottawa, joins the podcast to discuss topics in his research in this edition of the PV Roundup Specialist Spotlight. I'm your host, Senior VP, Medical Director, Dr. Tim Wright, and joining me on the podcast today is Dr. Francois Heyman. Dr. Heyman is a full professor at the Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of Ottawa, Canada. Dr. Heyman, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. Thanks a lot for having me. So first of all, can you describe your research setting and and where you work? So I work out of uh, University of Ottawa in uh, Canada, and uh, my specialty has been uh, from the get-go biology. So I'm a biologist by training, but I always focused on mammalian physiology. And in the last 20 years, I worked on human cold exposure. So my field of research is actually survival and and to determine ways or strategies to help humans survive in extreme environments. So on our podcast, I always throw this question out to our guests because I'm always fascinated on people's journeys to why they got into what they got into. Can you share yours? Yeah, so so essentially it's kind of interesting because again, as a kid, I was more into sports. Like I, what I love is actually sports. I was really played a lot of volleyball, a lot of football um, and uh, soccer and never really thought about grad studies. I got into human kinetics and uh it really opened up my mind in second year and I got really excited about uh, human survival and interested in looking at the effects of temperature. But for some odd reason, instead of going that route, I decided to go into teacher's college and I became a teacher and then kind of realized as I was teaching in high school and I was teaching chemistry, physics, uh, biology, phys ed, and I realized that I actually wanted more and I needed to kind of push the envelope a little bit. And now my research background came back. I went to biology and uh, again, to kind of diversify, studied fish, uh, energy metabolism in fish, uh, mammals, uh, migratory birds, and then uh, went, tried to get go back to teaching, but the calling was there for research. And for me, it's always been about not really the academia component, but more about my curiosity towards answering questions. And I just did what I needed to be able to answer questions and to be able to teach. I love teaching. I love being with students and I love bringing new uh, interest uh, to students, but also um, discovering new new ideas and new uh, science concepts. So this is basically really by accident that I got into research. You know, one of the things that I looked about with your research is it's not lost on me as someone who's born and raised in New England that cold can sometimes, you know, we've been dealing with it for a long time as a species. You talk a bit about how things are different for us. Can you expand upon how it's different for us in this era set than it was, say, for our grandparents or great grandparents? Yeah, so essentially a lot of things have changed over the years. And if we look at evolution, I always link things back to evolution, you know, as humankind kind of expanded towards northern areas and colder areas coming from the African savanna, where it was actually warm, where we, where we evolved, our bodies was not made to face these conditions at all. And uh, so we often wonder how could humankind even survive in these conditions? And a lot of it had to do with behavior, capacity to build shelters, capacity to get food, capacity to work together. And communities did work together and uh, they were in groups. Surviving alone in the cold is extremely difficult. Uh, you need people that can get firewood. You need people that can get, uh, that make food, uh, take care of children. 
So it takes a lot of energy as a community to survive in cold conditions. And what evolved quite dramatically over the years is actually the technology in terms of heating capacity. So now we don't need to go cut our firewood. Uh, we have way better clothing. Often we rely too much on these things. And I tend to be an outdoor, I'm an outdoors person. Uh, I do a lot of work in Northern Canada and you kind of put stuff in context. Uh, the equipment is very important, but it's not just a question of equipment. It's also the behavior and knowing how to protect yourself and make the right decisions and good planning. And I think what uh, probably our grandparents had was that capacity to actually do things really well. And they understood how to deal with cold. They understood how to protect. And the only thing that got way better is our clothing technology. And I think knowledge is actually being lost a little bit in terms of uh, the knowledge to survive in cold conditions. And um, this is some of the work that I'm doing with the U.S. military. I work quite a bit with NATO. And this is the work that we're trying to do, uh, talking about the importance of behavior. Right. And, and uh, full disclosure, my wife's family is from Quebec City and my father-in-law grew up in uh, Levy, St. Henri. And he remembers his childhood that they took sleighs across the St. Laurent. Yeah. It was frozen. And then there were all sorts of things that he knew about how to, you know, make sure all the animals on the farm were warm enough in those really cold winter days. And I, I think you're right. I think a lot of us and my mother's family grew up in Vermont. So I, I understand that there's a lot of knowledge that we probably had about how to deal with that adverse environments, and we've sort of lost it. So as an emergency medicine physician in our field, we're always interested in the extremes of temperature. I mean, part of our training is to deal with that. Um, I'm sure you probably have heard the phrase that no patient is dead until they're warm and dead. So can you talk to me a little bit about sort of where you have worked or your understanding of all these, how these extremes, and particularly the cold, put pressure on the human body? So essentially, out of uh, probably all the mammals, we are by far the most vulnerable. Our skins were not made to protect against uh, heat loss. It was actually made to favor heat loss. Right. So we were made to sweat and be able to dissipate heat as much as we could. Um, we got the uh, eccrine glands that are all over our body that can secrete tremendous amounts of uh, sweat. And then this sweat can be evaporated if it's not blocked by clothing or blocked by different means. So, of course, in the heat, we are at an advantage as long as we have access to water. If we have access to water, sufficient amounts of water, we will do uh, fairly fine, especially if it's in dry conditions. But this totally works against us when it comes to cold exposure, and it makes us tremendously vulnerable. And there's a few different factors, and this is work that I'm doing quite a bit, is to look at the effects of morphology. So not just in terms of body composition, but also in terms of body shape. Uh, look at different uh, racial differences, uh, look at uh, potential also uh, differences between sexes. And one factor that really comes out is the effect of mass. And, and, and mass is tremendously important. So what's interesting is that in the heat, the bigger you are, the more vulnerable you will be because your heat exchange will be lower. But in the cold, it will actually protect you. So in the cold, being a bigger individual, and you look at the, the mammals that are in the north, they tend to be much bigger uh, to be able to protect themselves because it gives you a bigger heat storage. And uh, so it does, make, it does make a big difference. And uh, so these things are actually um, factors that need to be, uh, need to be determined and, uh, and also uh, understood by the general public for their safety. Right. So um, I also saw in your faculty bio that one of your goals is to provide dietary strategies to help reduce the prevalence of obesity and obesity-related diseases in the First Nations communities in Northwest Ontario. 
And that reminded me when I was in medical school of a lecture from a professor about the Pima Indians and, and sort of the, the thrifty gene. Yes. So um, working this sort of cold-induced changes into the thrifty gene, do those two fit together neatly? I, I don't have enough understanding of that. Am I just off base? Yeah, so, so that's a great question. And again, you got to... I'm going to say it this way, and it's not something I generally say, but you got to believe in the thrifty gene. You got to believe that the genes are extremely different. For me, diet is key. In, in most of the individuals, you need proper food, you need nutritious foods, and you need to be able to know what, you know, if you're gaining weight, how to deal with weight gain, especially if you're dealing with obesity and type 2 diabetes. We're not, again, we're not talking about type 1 diabetes, which again, the origins are very different. We are talking about type 2 diabetes and access to nutritious foods is key. And I think one of these, you know, they are colder communities. They are cold for sure, but people also know to protect themselves and they tend not to be that cold. So even though they're kind of facing cold conditions, I don't think that it would in any way, shape or form work towards necessarily to an advantage to protect against obesity and type 2 diabetes. I think exercise does, physical activity does. And in the cold, we tend to be more active because it is colder. When we go up north and we go beaver trapping, we go hunting. The conditions are harsh. You're going through cold conditions. You're moving. People that think that skidooing is actually easy, being on a snowmobile, I've never done it, especially if it's not open trails. When you're going through the boreal forest and you're, you have a touring skidoo and you're pulling a sled, it's exhausting and it's a lot of work. So it's strenuous work to get on the land. So cold conditions do bring that extra need for physical activity and the actual cold strain, but it's not never going to counterbalance the effect of diet. And diet is, is key. And me, I've been working in First Nation communities for 20 years. And what's very important is how to get better food into these communities. Right. right. And I, I think I read that the, there are some implications that you're talking about how sort of sleeping in a colder environment or keeping your house a little cooler may have some impact on chronic conditions. You mentioned obesity and type 2 diabetes. Can you expand upon that a little bit? And then a second question, are there other disorders that where, you know, cold and, and cold-induced changes might help? Yeah, so that's, uh, again, an extremely important question. And I would tell you that a lot of people, especially over the last uh, 10 years, I've been trying to address that question uh, and looking at the effects of cold. There's actually little research linking um, cold and chronic disease. And we're doing a study right now looking at whether cold exposure could actually improve uh, or reduce the risk of uh, obesity. And uh, so we have a study where people are exposed exclusively to cold or doing diet restriction and cold are purely diet restriction. So one of the interesting things about, about cold, especially when it comes to obesity and even type 2 diabetes, is cold actually stimulates appetite. So it's been shown in animals and humans, it's not as clear uh, because we never go to the extent of cold exposure that we would see, but it's definitely not necessarily helping in the weight loss component. One thing that could happen though, and this is a uh, work that I've been, uh, that is ongoing in my lab is cold acclimation. So exposing yourself regularly to cold might bring a lot of metabolic changes that may be favorable. And one of those is linked to uh, the presence of brown fat, uh, the brown adipose tissue. So where there would be an increase in the amount of brown adipose tissue, but also an increase in the, in the activity of that brown adipose tissue. This is work I'm doing with Sherbrooke University and Université de Laval at Quebec City. And we've been doing this for 10 years and we do see big changes. And so again, cold, cold acclimation will increase the activity of certain tissues. At the muscle level, it actually might help also in insulin resistance. So it actually might 
improve insulin resistance. But we have to remember that cold, I, I say cold, but it's like exercise. Like what is cold and what is exercise? You need to define, am I biking two hours a day? Am I, how often should I expose myself to the cold? And the fact that one important factor is cold can actually be dangerous. If you don't know how to do it well, and you know, a lot of these ice baths are going to very extreme cold temperatures can actually cause uh, problems and more than, than help in terms of chronic disease. Yeah, it's interesting because as someone who, and, and I'll try a little French here, even though my French is terrible, there's a little ski de fond and a raquette, and I can't do the skating. That's too hard. The French is too hard to say ice skating. But all of those activities, you know, intuitively, we know if you're outside cross-country skiing and you come back in, you're going to be absolutely ravenous, um, more so perhaps if you exercise in the heat. So I think I read one of your papers, and I also think I followed, um, and, and probably a colleague of yours or who you're aware of, Dr. Kara Akabak out of uh, Notre Dame, the same sort of thing that, that, that there are probably some folks who can maintain a certain body type and fitness in cold. But, you know, I, I was intrigued by your discussion about, you know, size and things like that. To switch gears a little bit, I also did see that, you know, I recall a paper probably now or an article in the Boston Globe about five or six years ago talking about sleeping in cooler temperature may actually have some health benefits. Now, I don't know if that's been debunked or not, but I think they were talking about, you know, increased melatonin, other adaptations. Yeah, so, uh, so actually there's been interesting work done in the 90s, mid-90s, where they actually exposed the mammals, mainly dogs, to cold and realize that you can actually stimulate the um, proliferation of uh, mitochondria. So you can actually, all the energy producing uh, organelles in the, in the body that is found in every single tissue can actually increase its, it, the, the concentration of them. So how many mitochondria you, you would find. So it could improve aerobic capacity to a certain extent. It's never really been proven by the way. So, and we're kind of doing some of that work now. Uh, I use different types of protocols. The whole idea of sleeping in the cold, and I do it, by the way. So I never sleep under blankets. I always sleep on top of my blankets. I never use a sleeping bag. Uh, I'm going camping <laughs> this week, and I'll be sleeping on top of my sleeping bag. And this is something I've always done. The problem with sleeping in the cold, and uh, we're actually doing a study right now with with the um, Office of Naval Research uh, and uh, of the U.S. government, and uh, we're looking at how cold affects the capacity to sleep. So we do have to be careful in terms that cold, if you're not accustomed to it, can actually prevent, you can actually end up having many sleepless nights, and um, which could have tremendous effects. So again, this is like anything else, right. it's taking it at small doses and getting used to it very slowly. And yes, I think there could be benefits uh, towards it. I think cold could bring a certain level of benefits. This has not been determined, not quantified yet, but this is definitely a direction of research that is extremely interesting and extremely important, and it will come in the next years. You know, I also was talking to my sound engineer before you jumped on. One of the things I did notice, and I also go through sort of the pop culture stuff, is that everything old is new again. When I participated in sports back when dinosaurs roamed the earth, you know, we got into a cold hot tub to sort of help inflammation. And now very famous people who are either athletes or who are taking care of athletes are, you know, taking these cryo baths to help inflammation after hard workouts or after NFL football games. Is that a legitimate practice or is there research on that? Yeah, so, so there is. So basically, um, cold exposure, again, we have to be careful. I'm saying, I'm saying cold exposure, but there's also the level of cold exposure. So I'll make it generic. I'll say cold exposure. 
mild cold is always better than extreme cold because extreme cold can bring a certain level of injury, uh, injuries, including non-freezing cold injuries or even freezing cold injuries if you go into um, minus uh, or freezing temperatures. But let's just say cold exposure in general does reduce inflammation. And so we've measured inflammatory markers before and after cold, acclima- uh, cold exposure. And TNF-alpha, for example, will go up, which is an anti-inflammatory uh, marker and it will actually go up. So there's a lot of anti-inflammatory responses at the whole body level that will occur, and most likely also at the local level. But again, it depends about not being too extreme. So it's it's always finding out that balance and trying to remain within certain times. But it does help with inflammation for sure. And after exercise, which is very inflammatory, it could actually reduce the amount of inflammation. And recovery time, I think, is what probably a lot of- And and recovery time. And people have also tried pre-cooling to try to see if you can actually end up with less of an increase in core temperature during exercise because core temperature will reduce performance. Increases in core temperature will reduce performance. So by pre-cooling, what you're avoiding is to start at a higher core temperature and you're kind of starting at a lower level, which means that during that exercise, it might go up, but it's not going to go up as much. And it does seem to help also with performance. But again, a lot of it is anecdotal and we have to be careful. A lot of it has not been fully quantified, but these are things that are being looked at. So pre-cooling or post-cooling could actually have many benefits, but we do have to be careful about it. Right, absolutely. I mean, that's even in the emergency department when we send someone home with a sprained knee or ankle, we, we're like, you got to take that ice off. 20 minutes on, 40 minutes off, something like that. Exactly. So are there other questions that, you know, healthcare professionals or people who are interested in this area would ask that I'm not asking? Or are there something that's gotten you really excited um, that you've just learned recently in your field that you'd like to share? Yeah, so I'll share a project that I did a long time ago. And it's uh, basically what happens if a patient shows up uh, after a traumatic uh, incident, should you cool them? Uh, in the field before they get into the ER or should you not? And basically take him to the ER as quickly as you can or should you apply ice to try to cool them down and bring him into some sort of metabolic ice box to be able to control the uh, risk of inflammation and might reduce the risk of traumatic brain injury. And there was quite a bit of work that was done. But again, these are things that are not fully studied to a certain extent. And I think this is something that would be, that help very much in the medical field is to understand the benefits of using cold exposure and the titration of it. So how should you titrate the cold in the field if there's a traumatic uh, injury? Would there be a way to titrate, especially with brain injuries, right? So where time is crucial and you need to move quickly, there's a car accident, you're suspecting any type of brain injury. Should you pre-cool before getting into the ER? No, especially in the summer. I mean, uh, you know, in, here in Ottawa, like it's a world of extreme. We go to plus 40 degrees Celsius with 80% humidity in the summer. Then we end up with minus 40 with 60% humidity in the winter. But what happens if you're on the pavement at 40 degrees Celsius with full humidity? Should I, op- should, should I deal with the patient the same way in the field that I would in the, in the winter? And could winter actually be protected? So I think there's a lot of work that could be done in this field. And I don't think this is well studied, but uh, you know, coming back to your uh, inflammation, I think these are factors that could be key. You could control, you know, even uh, cardiovascular response is much better. And so these are things I think that 
as um, if, if I would be a practitioner, I'd be really interested in knowing what's the best practice in uh, using temperature. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I remember when the American College of Trauma Surgeons came out and said, you know, you're supposed to keep your emergency department at 80 degrees. And, you know, it's well known. It's sort of a well-known fact that operating rooms and emergency departments are, are frosty cold in the past because everyone who's working is rushing around like in an emergency department or a surgery. And the patients always shivered and complained of the cold. Then the American College of Trauma Surgeons came out and said, oh, you're supposed to warm it to 80 degrees. And we're all like, that's ridiculous. We're all going to sweat to death. And then my last question to wrap this up, because this has been a fantastic conversation. And I, you know, if you have some other research in, in the future, we'd love to have you back. But my last question, because I have been to your fair city, I was in there in May, and it was pretty hot for the period of time I was there in May. I read that you begin your day every day with a cold bath or shower. Now, I enjoy jumping into the Atlantic Ocean off of Cape Cod or, you know, an outdoor shower, but a cold shower in Canada? Really? Yeah. So basically, I, I started doing that, and it's it was kind of um, a way of getting a bit a, a bit of a stimulation in the morning, right? That to, to get you going. So a lot of people would get into coffee. You take a coffee, but actually, cold will do the same thing. It will release catecholamines, so stress hormones, and you will get some of that little uh, push and boost of energy that, that that you would get. So the cold shower, I tend to keep him short. One thing I do quite often, though, is I will do a warm bath at night to go to bed, okay. leave the water in the bathtub, and the next morning, we'll actually go into the cold water. But cold water meaning 16 degrees Celsius, maybe... You know, it's not, it's not, not that, not overly cold. So that would mean that it's just enough for me to kind of get my, my system going, get stimulated. And then I, I start my day uh, afterwards. So I kind of always use that. I just find it's a way of stimulating you instead of using, uh, you know, a, a drug like caffeine to, to get you going. I just find cold does it well. And I also feel extremely good afterwards. Like it kind of gives me a little push. It's a bit like doing exercise. It gives me, it gives me that little push. It's tough initially, but as you do it, it gets easier and easier. And we got to say that these are not overly long showers. Like if I do cold shower, I will attempt to keep it fairly short. Like it might be 30 seconds of cold water. So I will start with warm water and then cold water. But the whole concept is basically how I feel afterwards, but also just to stimulate myself. I do that camping quite a bit. I always wake up, jump in the lake. I don't care what temperature it's at. And then it's, I start my day uh, afterwards. Well, and I think that there's some, you know, some evidence of that also in, in Scandinavian cultures and perhaps indigenous cultures as well. Yes. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. Dr. Heyman, I appreciate your time. Well, thanks a lot. And I was really happy to chat with you and I will stay in touch for sure. And that's today's episode of the Specialist Spotlight. Thank you for joining. For more stories like these, visit us at pbroundup.com to subscribe to our weekly newsletters. Thoughts, comments, or suggestions? Please leave us a review on your preferred listening platform or email us at editorial at pbroundup.com. Subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Pandora, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, or Google. You can also download our Amazon Alexa Flash Briefing, Medical News Roundup, and just ask, what's my Flash Briefing? Thanks today to our guests, Dr. Francois Heyman, Norm Dion, Sean Mullen, and Kate Rio for production assistance. Join me next time for an episode where we'll cover the latest stories in the world of medicine.